0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Rugby Base. Going to be covering uh, round two of the Rugby Championship and uh, the blood is low, surprise, surprise, is going to be staying in New Zealand for the 16th year running. Uh, it was quite a, a a really good clinical performance from New Zealand. There's really not much you could criticise in that game. The referees were pretty pretty good in it. Uh, Australia just, in the end, got undone by some pretty little mistakes but just New Zealand were just awesome to behold. It's very scary. A bit worrying if you're a Springboks fan because the te- the defense is terrible, as was the case against Argentina. We'll talk about that game a little bit later as well. I'm uh, going to talk a bit more about, since you know, 16 years going now that the Wallabies have not managed to secure the Bledisloe, talk about what's potentially going wrong with with the situation. Some, some points that I don't understand what Rugby Australia is doing, but I'll get into that after I talk about the uh, New Zealand-Australia game. 40 to 12 was the score, and it. last week I had a lot of refereeing complaints about Dirty. There wasn't much to complain about. Ex- I will touch on this one point, because the Australian media really, really harked onto this to the point where I got irritated. But <clears throat> the treatment of Pocock at the ba- breakdown really needs to come under scrutiny, because he was quite a bit of a pest. He's always a pest, because he's the best in the world at what he does. He was a pest in the first test and it looked like there was a very deliberate attempt to stop him by the All Blacks this week and it came around grabbing him. On, he the, he was neck rolled out of a, a, a ruck very early on in the game and it, tended, it looked like it affected him quite badly. There was no sort of caution to the New Zealand players. It was quite obvious to everyone watching that it had happened and there just didn't seem to be any sort of disciplinary action to the players involved and... It's the only complaint I have about the referees in this game because it's the one. But, I mean, when we're talking about a player's neck, we're talking about the forward pack in rucks and stuff like that. There's a lot that can go wrong to for a player that could potentially be career-threatening when you when you start to take the neck into account. And it's unacceptable. It cannot be tolerated, and they need to really make sure that they focus on. It's also something that's going to make it more, it's going to make it harder now for the Springboks when they play against Australia, because the media has now pointed this out. South Africa really needs to be clean when they, when they clean out the rucks, when they're trying to stop Pocock from going on the ball, because anything that happens now on the ground that looks like a dirty hit to get Pocock off the ball is going to result in disciplinary action. It's just the way things go. Media points out something that's wrong. It is wrong. But now the referees are going to have added scrutiny in the coming weeks, which affects the other team coming in. So South Africa will have to be really, really careful playing playing against the Wallabies because anything they do on the ground now in the clean-out is going to be under a microscope. But that was the only complaint that I have outside of that. Australia got outclassed. Throughout the two halves, New Zealand ran 300 300 metres more in terms of in when they broke the line, three hundred meters of territory they gained. That's you're never going to win a game of rugby. Australia lacked any sort of forward momentum. They really struggled to get over the gain line. Without Israel Folau there, they really had no line penetration from their set moves. They are quite stagnant for large portions of the especially of the second half where they just couldn't seem to break the new zealand line and that would have been really really handy to have someone like israel there to potentially mix it up make a line break etc despite the score and this is what's really really when you play the all blacks it's really really it sounds really silly when you start going, well, the Wallabies' defense is actually pretty good. And it's like, well, they got beaten by 28 points, Jonathan. How is that possible? It actually was. Uh, a lot of the All Blacks' points actually didn't come from what I would consider poor defense from the Wallabies. It was actually poor ball skills from the Wallabies. So little knock ons here and there. It was just the ability of the All Blacks to. No team in world rugby pounces on mistakes like they do. And they don't. They seem to be getting better at it better and better. And it's really, really scary because you can have the ball for 10 phases, 15 phases. You could be getting incrementally getting close to the line because the line, working really, really hard. And you throw a pass that's maybe just a little bit too high into your props chest pops out. And all of a sudden, Bowden Barrett has got it with two All Blacks to, to his left and his right. And they've counter They've gone 80 metres to the other side. you spent the last 10 minutes working your way to where you are. And just before half-time, they've taken your 10 minutes worth of work and in 30 seconds turned it into a try at the other end. It's really, really hard to play the All Blacks when this happens. Because, like I said, Australia's defence in that first half, good. They kept them under wraps. They were sort of keeping up with the All Blacks just like they did in Sydney, and then all of a sudden, boom, one knock on, and you get stung at the other end. It's insane. It and it it, it takes the wind out of your sails. And you could see with the Australians that it took I mean, I don't know a team in rugby that it wouldn't, because you you put the work in and they just they just come back and they just put a dagger in your heart straight away. It is the way they play rugby is so it's not only, when you, when you, from a neutral perspective, it's not only good to watch, but it's so psychologically damaging if you're a rugby player on the field, because no other team in rugby is doing this to each other. When South Africa and Australia play each other in a week and a bit's time, this is, this. they're not gonna do this, they might take advantage of each other's mistakes, it's not gonna be done in the same emphatic fashion the way the All Blacks do, before half-time, just after half-time. They just seem to be able to, they, they are on another level when it comes to, the, when they play the game they have a psychological influence on it too with when they score points how they make your your you know how you make your smallest mistake become your biggest nightmare and here we are i mean the rugby championship's over that's for sure there's no way south africa or argentina Argentina have never won in new zealand so let's just get that one out of the way south africa just lost on the road to argentina so get that out the way New Zealand are going to have this wrapped up before they even have to travel to Argentina and South Africa. That's just the way, the nature of the rugby championship draw. It's not f- it's not f- right in that regard, but the All Blacks, it doesn't really matter. If they had to travel at this point, the All Blacks are really, they're not even a, a, a step above everyone else. They're two or three steps above everyone else. Nothing seems to have changed in that regard. Maybe when the spring tour happens... For the northern hemisphere, with the northern hemisphere sides, we might get to see if someone else has gotten closer. Maybe Ireland is closer, but right now, New Zealand are way in front of their southern hemisphere um, compatriots. So, going into the rugby championship, uh, there was questions about Bowden Barrett, and I don't think there's any more questions after scoring four tries against the uh, the Wallabies. It's really unfortunate for Moanga that he has to play behind Bowden, but. There is no way that Bowden should be threatened now. Bowden is unless he gets injured going into the World Cup next year. He has to be number ten. Has to be reasonably safe, whatever reasonably safe means. If you're an All Black, but I think that he should feel as comfortable knowing that he's going to get that jersey as Brodie Retallick and Kieran Kieran Reid do. Those two players never have to worry about when about getting selected because they are. If you're Brodie Rotalic, the best at what you do. If you're Kieran Reid, you're one of the best at what you do in Bowden Barrett is the best at what he does in World Rugby. He might not be able to kick like Johnny Sexton, but he he's a game changer at ten. That explosive pace, his playmaking, and his counter he's that part of that counter-attacking culture in New Zealand rugby, he is so so fundamentally part of that. That pace accelerate it just it really, really Destroys teams and it destroyed Australia. You fought, you don't score four tries against the Wallabies if you're not one of the best, if not the best at what you do in the world. And he's proven it. I think that that's it for that. that there's no more questions anymore. He's got it through to the next World Cup, and that's the end of it. Moving topics now still within the topic, the realm of New Zealand versus uh, Australia, but th- this is the 16th year now that Australia has not been able to take the low from New Zealand. And it's really, it, it brings up a conversation every single time, brings up coaching, player selection, all that sort of thing. And so in 2018, it's been you know more of the same from Wallaby's stagnation, poor selections and mismanagement from Rugby Australia. There are a lot of things I've always been highly skeptical of the bureaucracy behind rugby in Australia because they don't seem to ever make decisions are within the best interest of the game as a whole. They seem to be very trigger-happy and responsive to things that happen straight away and I've never really understood why they've been like this, but it just it just they seem to continually repeat the cycle. And to give an example, the, the thing that I can't understand is the fact that Rugby Australia has given Michael Hooper a five-year, $5 million contract. And this is problematic for several reasons. One of them being that Michael Hooper isn't even the third best player in the Wallabies squad. He's So he's not even the best player. He's not even the third best player in the team. Uh, the best players in the team are Israel Folau and David Pocock. Now, David Pocock, Israel Folau, gets paid a lot more than uh, Michael Hooper does. And that makes sense. He's the best player on the team. He's the one most likely to influence results. He's the one who draws the most attention in the back line, etc., etc. And he's also really good at you know for marketing purposes and stuff like that. David Pocock's a second best player in the Wallaby side. He doesn't get paid as much as Michael Hooper does now. And I think that that's really, really problematic. And what I can't understand about why they've given this contract to Michael Hooper is I cannot for the life of me understand why they continue to go with the Pocock-Hooper combination on the field. For me, so they play with two open side flankers on the field, but one of them is clearly a better open side I think that David Pocock is the best open side in world rugby at the moment. And so by putting Hooper and Pocock on the field at the same time, they are leaving themselves completely undersized. For example, to further qualify this point, Sam Kane, who plays opens, who played open side on the weekend for the All Blacks is four inches taller and sorry, he's two inches taller and five kilos heavier than Hooper. And you know, that's, it's not a giant leap, but that's only when you're comparing open side to open side because they've had to, they've, they want to slot Pocock and Hooper onto the field at the same time. David Pocock's opposite is Kieran Reed. He's four inches taller and nearly 10 kilos heavier than Pocock. That is a big, big sacrifice in size when you're talking about in the, you know, when it comes to running gain lines, uh, cleaning out of the ruck and stuff like that. That's, you know, it's, it's a large difference. And the thing that you now notice when you watch the Wallabies play is Hooper, he's never really been, I don't, he does hang around the rucks a little bit, but he's never been a typical open side in that he he ferrets around them all the time, waiting for an opportunity to get in and try and steal the ball. He's never, he's, he's more of an all round all around the field kind of forward which is nothing wrong with that. I, this is not to disparage Michael Hooper, the rugby player. I think he's a very good rugby player. But his, his, his more all-round forward behavior, You know, he, get, he can sometimes be found caught out in the centers, on the wing, sometimes down the... He's all over the place. And he doesn't really behave like a true open side, in my opinion. But because he's like that, and now he's been paired with an actual true open side, who is playing in number eight these days he's now doing those things more. So he's leaving the rucking areas more and more open to Pocock so Pocock can do what he does best and try and steal the ball. But now it's leaving less physicality available for clean outs, for ball carrying, because now Hooper's not always there. And I just I don't know why it's so hard not to see this on a rugby field. They don't have... They shouldn't be on the field together. It's just plain and simple. You should be pairing Pocock with a bigger... Pocock should be, first of all, in the number 7 jersey because he's the true open side flanker, and you should be putting a bigger body at number 8 to help with clean-outs, to help with ball-carrying, because neither Pocock or Hooper are big, imposing ball-carriers. When you look at what the All Blacks trotted out, Squire, Kieran Reid... And Sam Kane. Sam Kane's the smallest of the lot, and he's the open side, and he's still bigger than both Pocock and Hooper. Like, you doesn't take. It's shouldn't be very difficult to see what the problem is here. They are not compatible, and this just links into why would you give a player who's not 100% compatible with the team on the field a five million dollar contract? It makes no sense. Put that onto the fact that Rugby Australia has been saying for years now that they don't have any money, but they've got money to pull up. $5 million, million a year to the Waratahs and Wallabies captain, oh, because that's right, they always have money for Waratahs players. There's always more money to, to sign a Waratahs player to a nice, big, healthy, juicy contract. But at, at what? At the risk of the rest of the team, he doesn't deserve that money. It should have gone to someone else. It should have been used for something else. But for some reason, because he's checkers captain, because he's from New South Wales... They give him the contract because he's to Wallaby captain. But he's done nothing on the field to prove why he deserves a million dollars a year. That makes him a top 10 in the world in terms of just annual salary. He gets in the top 10. That's just unacceptable. And it's just another example of the Australian Rugby Union just wasting absolutely stupid amounts of money on a player that doesn't deserve it. And look, as I said, he's not... I'm not disparaging Michael. I don't think he's a bad player. I just think the combination... I just think he's unlucky that he plays... He's only, what, two or three years younger than Pocock. They're both, re- you know, in their primes. I just think he's unlucky that he plays at the same time as a better player than him. And... But he's not... He, he And I think Hooper is in the Wallaby side because Check is the coach. I honestly do. I don't think that Hoop. I think Hooper would be... On the bench because I think he would be an absolutely amazing player to pull off the bench at 60 minutes when legs are getting tired. Because he is, he's, he's a little Energizer Bunny. He gets around the field. He's good with the ball in hand. He's a good, or like I guess, he's a good all-round player on the field. But they just for some reason, because Checker's the coach and Checker thinks Hooper can play at the, alongside Pocock, he's on the field and you're not getting the results that you should be getting if you had paired Pocock with a bigger, more imposing forward. And this brings me on to, on, on to Michael Checker. Um, there's been a lot of... Mostly the public have been calling for him to be fired. He's now been in charge of the Wallabies for 50 tests. And he's lost 23 of those and drawn two. And this it's not a very good, obviously not a very good record for a Wallabies head coach. But a lot of the... Formal, former Wallaby players and stuff like that have been sort of saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't fire him. And I tend to agree with that because the time was last year that they should have fired him. It's too late now. Uh, South Africa is actually showing you that maybe erring on the side of caution and then firing someone is not the way to do it. Uh, While well, I believe Rusty Erasmus is going to do wonders for the Springboks and things will change for the for Springboks for the better, the problem is, is that they've waited too long. It's 18 months out, and, you know, when they brought him in, 18 months before uh, World, a World Cup kicks off. Uh, the Wallabies need to stand their ground and they need to hold on to checker. Uh, uh I agree with you. You, you, you. For better or for worse, if you bring in someone else now, it, it will get worse because at least now the team has Checkers' identity. Now, whether you agree that that identity is good and the Wallabies will make any noises at the Rugby World Cup, that's up to you. But it'll be worse if you bring in someone now because you've only got one more test against the All Blacks. If you bring in another coach now, you're behind the eight ball when you play against the Pumas and the Springboks. And then you have to go on a Northern Hemisphere tour. You don't really have the, uh, the build-up that you require you know, to, to gel a team together. And you're seeing that with South Africa. South Africa are a bit haphazard at the moment they played really well at home but their defense isn't very good a lot of untested players in the back line a lot you know not to new faces and stuff like that and the wallabies just need to they're gonna have to st- stick it out now. I think that they should wait to the world cup. I don't think they're gonna make as much noise at the world cup as they want to. Checker can get fired then but for now you've just got to hold on you got to hold steady onto the boat now because it's you're going all the way. You got to go all the way with Checker to the World Cup it's way way too late in the day to fire him so we'll move on to the argentina slavery game and i have to say that this really brought me down to earth and it was very (laughs) i was very very emotional during the game because i'm sort of there's one thing about the Springbok rugby team with me is that it always it, it brings out the the best and worst emotions in me and it's a good thing that I oh, I, I never ever podcast directly after watching rugby games especially when it's the Springboks because I would just absolutely ignore the negatives that my team show and just be like lambasting referees and all that sort of thing and if you ever watch, if you ever saw my social media chats that just like me raging about referees how this player cheated this player did that and It's why I've taken several days now to compress what I saw. And I have to say that, you know, well done to the Pumas because they, they capitalize on a lot of Springbok mistakes and they made very few of their own. And it is something when you play rugby, it's not, it's not very well, unless you're the All Blacks, no one seems to take notice of the teams that don't make mistakes and they capitalize on the mistakes of others. And when you take into account that the Pumas actually fired their coach, in June they fight or well, he he resigned fired However you want to look at it he was they they've changed coaches since then and you know South Africa played a really good game of rugby in Durban last week and it was why I got so excited about it. I was like oh this is you know new dawn same thing with the England series new dawn here we go Rassi Rasmussen Alistair could see in the rearview mirror and the way the pumas played that game was they just they they were defensively sound. Let's get that out of the way. When you look at the possession stats from the second half throughout the entire match, the fact that they limited the Springboks to 19 points just points to some really, really fantastic defense. And you can't take that away from them because they weren't only defensively sound, they played the referee, they they played to the referee's whistle. Now we all know that any any game of rugby can be, you know, the the ruck can be interpreted differently. But they never changed how they approached the ruck. Look at it this way. Evan Etzebeth got a yellow card in on the ground for making a cynical killing the ball. And the Pumas just played to Angus Gardner's whistle the entire time. It was very frustrating to watch, but that's what you got to do. You play to what your referee is giving you. And so sound defense, they played to the referee. And even though South Africa really were like giving them a were hammering them in the second half. There was just wave after wave, phase after phase. The Pumas never actually looked under pressure. Even after um, after the, the first try was scored in the second half, when you thought that, oh, okay, here it comes. The Springboks have just flipped the switch now. Argentina got a bit lucky in the first half. Here it comes. And it never really came because the Pumas were just defensively really, really good. And... As I said, they 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 capitalise on mistakes. And the biggest issue with the Springbok rugby side ever since Rassi took over is and I mean you can say it's you know it was a problem in Kutsier's time. I'm not gonna focus on what Koodsier's reign was. I'm just gonna focus on what it is on what we are now. And I've seen a lot of good players be given their chance in the Springbok jersey right now and My biggest issue with it is defense. It is quite frankly defense. There are a lot of things that are really, really good. The pack I think performs quite well when going on attack and stuff like that. Uh, We did really well against England in this regard, but the one thing that is really, really letting us down is missed tackles and just defense overall. We have conceded so many points since that June series against England. England put on 21 points in the first, what, 12 minutes in the first test of that series. And nothing has changed in this regard. And this is where I think Rusty obviously has to focus on intently because the fact is Willie the Rue let's look this way. He's changed his back line in his back three especially. So he's got Willie the Rue, he had Dianti, he had Incorsi in the um, in the England series, and he's now got Mbanti there. And these players have all played. they've all shown that they belong and Willie the Roo's creativity, with the athleticism of the other two wingers, you know, they, they've shown a really, really good um, sort of counter-attacking presence. against Argentina, though, uh, Willie the Roo's passing was off. So there was a lot of times where you thought where well, he got the ball in hand. And you were like, "Oh, here it comes! Here it comes!" And the wingers were getting a line and all that sort of thing. And he would throw a, 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 you know, a wayward pass. He was throwing them too high. He was throwing them too low. He was doing chip kicks that were too far. They were too short. He was really off his game. But that's the thing with Willie the Roo. You kind of you have to t- you have to accept that that's going to happen from time to time. I'm not going to criticise him, but it did starve his wingers of the opportunity to make a difference. And when you're not scoring, so when Willie Roo is not creative in this regard and your wingers aren't scoring as much as they were say against England or in the Durban test, all of a sudden the defensive problems become far more apparent and I mean it, you can even if you just look at the scores from the previous games you have to acknowledge that defense was still an issue but the offensive side of the ball was like oh you know it's taking being taken care of these guys are playing really good attacking football it's okay and it's not okay it's really not because we can't rely on Willie LaRue to be a creative force every game he's a human being he's going to make mistakes and if he can't get good ball out to the wingers then they're useless as well and this isn't to say the wingers aren't good players I mean I love Gianti and I love Encorsi especially but when they don't have the ball in their hands, you know, this is the same thing with wingers all over, the, in all, all over the world in World Rugby. If you can't get the ball in their hands, what are they? They're not really much. They need a creative force to help them and they use their athleticism, their speed, uh, their creativity once they have the ball in hand. They are not off the ball players. They are on the ball players most, most of the time. So the defense needs to improve because Andre Pollard, for instance, didn't have a good game. The um, the Yanchis versus Pollard argument came up in the press again. I don't think we need to have it. We really need to focus on the fact that Pollard had a bad game. Yanchis have bad games too. Uh, if it becomes a habit, then we can bring it up again. Both players are young. Both players on have experienced some success at varying degrees at Super Rugby. Yanchis has been a more successful Super Rugby player, but we need to acknowledge they both have made a lot of mistakes. And we can't let we can't let either of them off the hook for them, but we can't just throw them to the wayside either. Pollard needs a chance to make the ten jersey his own. Yanchi's had that opportunity last year, and I'm not saying he's never going to get that opportunity again, but he needs to wait for Pollard to drop the ball again. And I think the games against Australia and New Zealand, which is what yanchi has got last year, will give him the opportunity to show us whether Andre Pollard can be the player that we think he could be, or maybe he needs more seasoning, he is young, and that Yanchis gets the opportunity to go again. We'll see, we'll see. The, uh, the overarching point here is, you know, I'm mentioning Willing LaRue, I'm mentioning the wingers, I'm mentioning Pollard. These are all attacking deficiencies that I'm sort of saying, oh, well, this doesn't happen, this might not happen. Well, you know, the main point here is that defense needs to improve. It really does, because some of the tries Argentina scored were soft. I look at town, you know, I praised Australia's defense in the last podcast. I praised that this podcast earlier. They look organized. They just look like they've been absolutely pinched on mistakes. Absolutely pinched on mistakes. And it's it, it's hard for the wallabies when they look at it. But when I look at the overall defensive structures, I look at the team and I go, you know what? I saw problems at 13 potentially, but they haven't really eventuated. The overall structure of the team seems to work quite well, and it worries me when the Springboks play the Wallabies in this, you know, because the Springboks obviously not the All Blacks, so the Wallabies' defence is now going to come to the fore even more. Even when they were playing Ireland, Australia played pretty good defence. The fact that is that Ireland are a very structurally sound team, and so. When it came to other facets of the game Australia would beaten. you know the kicking and stuff like that Australia were beaten out in that regard but they never ever were defensively overrun by Ireland Ireland had to beat them by being more a more complete team in other facets of the game so it's a real big issue for South Africa going forward and I'm not saying this to disparage the Pumas because the Pumas you know they took advantage of it but you know south africa got beaten by more than 50 points by new zealand last year the fact that they drew twice with australia was kind of an anomaly that was an anomaly for both teams both teams are kind of in transition but we're seeing a clear pattern you know england scoring a lot of points in south africa against South africa we're seeing a clear pattern where the pumas did score a fair amount of points in durban let's not write them off it was a good performance by the springboks but the pumas played well they scored points they were in that game for a very long period of time and when when the springboks went to mendoza all of a sudden you know the def- the offensive side of the ball stagnates there's a few issues the pumas do their best to you know to interfere and stagnate that process and all of a sudden the Springboks are on the losing end of it, and it is simply down to their defense. They need to fix it. They really do. And I, I'm going to stop rambling on about the defense. I'm going to focus on, you know, Erasmus. It's Springbok rugby has not been fantastic since the 2011 World Cup. Like, let's be honest, we had a pretty decent, you know, we had 2013 was a good year, and we beat uh, the Wallabies at uh, their fortress in Brisbane. And, you know, we had that epic clash uh, at at um, Ellis Park. And we also got to the semi-final of the World Cup. But you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of really not great things in between that as well. It's been a very choppy time. We, you know, between 2007, 2011, we were a very good team. But between 2011 and now, it's been a bit choppy. And especially between 2015 and now, it's been very inconsistent. And to get going forward, we need to stop criticizing the process that's in place. Because, we have none of the veterans that we have before. It's a complete blank slate in that regard. You know, we keep we keep talking about Francois Stane, we keep talking about J.P. Peterson, these guys aren't coming back. And we we or we at least should play the game of they're not coming back. The 2007 veterans, they are gone. From now on, it's a blank slate. Kutsia had a blank slate to a certain degree, and now Rossi Erasmus is a blank slate. And we need to remember that this is a process. And it's very, very difficult as a Springbok fan. As an emotional Springbok fan like I am, I find it very, very difficult to just accept that we are the seventh best rugby team in the world because we are. We don't play well. We don't play well away from home. And it's unfair of me to have take this out on the players because a lot of the players are very, very young. A lot of them are younger than I am. And none of them have experience winning a, um, a rugby championship, none of them have experience winning a rugby world cup. A lot of them don't even have experience that none of them have experience, sorry, winning super rugby. So it's a very young, impressionable group and we should really be supporting them and supporting Russi's goal of making this team better. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying I won't get upset this, you know, next weekend. If we lose to all of these, I absolutely will get very upset because I can't control the emotion in the moment. But I think, All South Africans really need to just take stock and go, do we want this to change? Because Rossi's director of South African rugby as well. He has a big influence on how South African rugby can change for the future with its internal structures. So do we want instant gratification? Yes, we do. But what do we want further in the long term? Do we want a successful rugby system that brings us a uh, successful rugby team over the long term? yes that is more of what we want and we're going to have to try and suppress the emotional feelings we attach to the sprinkles because we are not as good as we used to be but we can be and i think we just have to trust the process we just have to support the hell out of the players and we have to make sure that we don't feel like we don't make them feel like that we don't believe in them because i think we do we just let our emotions get the better of us because it's a very emotional sport for us anyway thank you guys for listening Maybe rambled on a bit there at the end, but it's a very special topic for me. Uh, If you like the Rugby Base, follow us on Twitter, at Rugby Base. Thank you, guys, and uh, see you again for the next podcast.